Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world, welcome to another brand new that's right. I know we've forced you guys lately to listen to uh, classic episodes, but no more of that. I'm telling you, no more. This is a brand new episode. Though a two-timer on our show, Dave Wexler, now at Omer's Ventures, which is a venture firm out of Canada. And Dave Wexler, who we first had on when he was at Comcast, he went to Hippo, where he was an exec who worked with their smart home initiatives, but had an offer that he couldn't refuse. So he's now with Omer's Ventures. And like I said, that is a pension fund owned venture firm that invests in many things, including InsureTech. And that's why Dave is there. Dave is an InsureTech guy. He's an InsureTech old timer. And uh, you're going to hear all about his new world and his new excitement. And also a lot of his insights as an educated mover and shaker inside the InsureTech community. And so, um, Lee, you're wondering, you're thinking to yourself, why isn't Lee talking? Well, I'm not letting him talk today. In fact, I muzzled him. He's not with us. And I gave him a $10 bill in exchange for him not being here. So it's just me today. You get me, and in a second, you get me and Dave. And so without further ado, here's our interview with Dave Wexler, principal at Omer's Ventures. Hey, everybody. You are here today with a very special guest, a two-timer? Two-timer. Two-timer. That's right. Dave Wexler, principal at Omer's Ventures and longtime friend of the FNO InsureTech podcast and longtime friend already. All right. Also, most of you people will not know that he's also the chief financial officer and chief technical officer and chief technical officer <laughs> and chief bottle washer <laughs> of Amori. Did I say that right? Amori, but close enough. Amori. And tell everybody what that is. Sure. Amori is my wife's business. It's a bath and body products company inspired by Japanese bathing culture, which she founded about eight years ago. And uh, I've had the privilege to be her assistant, usually cleaning up after her mess or taking care of her finances as she's built a nice little company on the side. Great. Well, that's awesome. And and I just want, um, as part of the plug that we're doing right here, <laughs> that Dave and I are doing. Um, and Dave volunteered to be on the episode, even if we didn't do this. Absolutely. But I appreciate I, you doing I, But I wanted to say that for Christmas, I bought my wife a bunch of your wife's products. And she loves them. So if my wife loves them, you'll love them. Where do you find it? You can find, and thank you for being a customer and, and the purchase. And I'm glad your wife loved it. And you can find my wife's products at amaori.com, which is A-M-A-Y-O-R-I.com, amaori.com. Yeah, tell them Rob sent you. Rob sent you. You know what? That- <laughs> You're in the comments. There's a little comment field. You can add that in there. And and you want to know what? This is the first commercial we've ever had on our podcast. <laughs> well, I appreciate the plug. Thank you. 
in, in, in keeping with our podcast, it's completely uncompensated. Well, we had a chance to talk about this when we were chatting last week. It's been amazing to watch that grow. And it's been really cool to watch a little business start and, and kind of get to a point where it's actually living on its own. So thanks for your support. I appreciate it. Well, it's awesome. And you have your own growth and change story, which is what we're going to get to today. So awesome. I stay in touch with Dave and here and there and everywhere. And not long ago, yeah. he, he said... Yep, I'm moving again. And so kind of bring everybody up to date. Talk about where you were when when we first met and and then go through and bring us up to where you are now. Sure. So when we first met, which was, I would say, about three years ago, I was at Comcast Xfinity. Comcast was the largest in, uh, internet company in the United States, actually probably the world. And I think we kind of connected because Comcast had both led the investment Series B in HIPPO, uh, HIPPO Home Insurance. And I was actually on the partnership side at Comcast where um, I went out and got my insurance license, set up a PNC agency for Comcast and then actually built a partnership with Hippo to sell Hippo insurance to Comcast customers across the country. And I'm a tech guy. I really didn't have a background in insurance. I didn't know much about insurance, except I hated paying my insurance bill. Besides <laughs> that, though, I knew practically nothing. And um, what I loved about Hippo and what drew Comcast and myself to Hippo many years ago was Comcast, rather Hippo's focus on smart home technology, which was an area that I specialized in at Comcast. And uh, I had a chance to work with the SOF and his team for many years while at Comcast, both in the partnership capacity as well as being an investor. And um, it was just an amazing experience to watch you know, a, a group of very talented, smart people have a vision, which eventually became you know, one of the real InsurTech kind of uh, success stories out there. And uh, that's when we first met. And uh, you and I had, uh, on the last time I was on the show, and, and Lee as well, had a chance to talk about smart home and how that might impact um, the future of kind of uh, smart home insurance. And I think we even talked about other areas as well, like IoT for telematics and auto and other uh, areas of insurance that could be impacted by smart technology as it kind of evolved. That was, I'd say, about three years ago we talked. Wow. I love that you've done your homework. Yeah. Well, I remember some things, other things I don't remember, but yeah. The only thing I remember is that I bought my wife, your wife's products <laughs> for Christmas. And I actually forgot that until we talked the other day. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. We're on the same, we're on the same wavelength here. So after about three and a half years of working with Hippo, I had an amazing opportunity to join the team. I joined Hippo in uh, late 2020. Um, you know, I knew the team as they were growing up, uh, they were uh, kind of getting ready to go public. Uh, Smart Home was a big focus of theirs, and I had the amazing honor to be asked to join the team. So I joined, helped them kind of um, build a Smart Home program. Uh, we had partnerships with some companies you know and you've interviewed. I think you had Matt Wolf on once from uh, Simply Safe. He was um, one of our big partners. Brett Jurgens from Notion. I think you've interviewed him as well. Mm -hmm. A couple others that I had uh, the pleasure of working with and kind of building out the smart home strategy in conjunction with Hippo. And um, I ran that until December of this year, uh, at which time I made my jump and uh, had a chance to join the world of venture capital. Oh, and so why say yes to venture capital? So listen, I'm a 
career entrepreneur before joining Comcast. I did 26 years of tech startups. I had five different startups, three of which I started. It's a really hard, lonely place to do startups. And um, one of the areas that is hardest is raising money. And, you know, over my career, I had a chance to raise money from a couple of venture capitalists, a lot of friends and family, some strategic investors. But, you know, very candidly, when you're trying to appeal to these investors with very deep pockets called venture capitalists, it's a very alluring industry. It becomes a little bit of a mythical beast. So as I watched people like Asaf, the CEO of Hippo, do a fantastic job with that, as well as others in our space, and I had a chance to learn about the space, it was intriguing to me. And then I got a call from Omer's Ventures, my current employer, about potentially leading their focus in insure tech investing. And uh, they had a great portfolio already starting to come together, which included uh, both WeFox in Europe and ClearCover here in the US. And uh, the allure of having a chance to actually be on the ground and actually build a portfolio of insure tech investing was uh, a big, big, big and exciting opportunity for me. So I decided to move forward with that and started officially this past January. And so you're there for a couple of weeks. And what do you think so far? About six weeks. I think, oh my God, this is uh, a lot different than I thought, but great. Really, really interesting. You know, it's, uh, I thought I knew about InsureTech, but let me tell you, um, I'm seeing pitches all day long from extremely smart entrepreneurs in the space who know aspects of InsureTech I've never even heard of before. Um, and it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's mind boggling. There isn't a day where I don't learn a hundred new things and I'm kind of humbled by how smart the people are in the space. So I love it. Uh, it's intimidating to be honest with you at times it's a little bit intimidating, but overall it's been an amazing six weeks and, uh, I'm really, really happy. I, I made a move into this space now. You know, it's funny that you say that. Cause I think that one of the things that I noticed or am noticing today in, as I look back is, in the earlier days of InsureTech, of course, which was four weeks ago, but (laughs) recent history, in the early days of InsureTech, it seemed like many people were going after real low-hanging fruit, you know? I mean, not, I don't want to say it was easy, that's not the right word, but I don't have a better word that comes to my mind, but the obvious, obvious, not easy, obvious. But as time has gone on, it's getting far more technical and and specific and deeper, right? Is that what you're seeing as well? hundred percent. I mean, the quote unquote obvious era was basically, in my interpretation, was insurance not keeping the pace that customers, both consumers and businesses were kind of expecting in the market, right? Mm -hmm. And that was an inevitability, right? Like it was inevitable that better data sources would help with underwriting. It was inevitable that better interfaces were required for both, you know, underwriting as well as account servicing. It was inevitable that there were these incremental improvements to take it from a pen and paper industry to something that was, you know, much more digital forward. But now to your point, what I'm seeing and I see every day are, you know, advanced AI models, emerging risks, concepts that I think arguably weren't even in market three, four years ago for not only managing these emerging risks, but also managing risk in general. So uh, it's a really exciting time to be in this space, both as an entrepreneur or as an investor. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think, you know, uh, as we all know, public markets are kind of poo-pooing the insurtechs right now, but um, it's such a myopic view of really what the opportunity is here for both new players as well as incumbents. I think there's a lot of really smart incumbents who are thinking a lot about this as well and saying like, our industry is going to change and it's not just a web interface to attract new customers. It's about the underlying nature of risk changing and the underlying way that we insure against risk changing as well. So here we are. Today is deuces wild, 2-2-22. And the stock market is crashing, which is something that we've all seen before. The uncertainty in the 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 market unease must have an effect on your world. Yes. Talk can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, hundred percent. So I'm a dot com survivor. I've actually been through this before. Um, you know, and I was selling my first dot com during the days that the markets were actually just pre tumult. And the reality is is that this stuff happens, right? People get really excited, they probably overvalue, then there's this massive pullback, which is probably the undervalue period. And then there's something in between. What kind of happens in capital markets, at least on the private market side, uh, private company side, when you're raising, is that this kind of um, euphoria of, oh my goodness, I don't want to miss out on this, brings a lot of people to the table with a lot of big money saying, I want in on this, say, insure tech phenomena. And I think arguably, um, you know, that did happen to quite a few insure techs in the early days. Now you're seeing the kind of opposite happen where there's a lot of anxiety and fear. And I think people in particular who don't understand InsurTech are kind of walking away saying, eh, maybe this isn't the right space for me. So we're seeing, and my, my uh, extensive six weeks of being a venture capitalist in the space, um, you know, entrepreneurs, I think, coming to us with a more realistic sense of of valuations. That's not bad, by the way. It's still actually, they're very lucrative valuations and they're still very generous investing going on in the market. It's just not quite as extreme as it was. Frothy. Yeah, frothy. But more importantly, and I think about this every day, and this I think extends well beyond um, InsurTech. As an entrepreneur, I think in the last 10 years, there's been a culture of kind of over-raising, over-valuations. And I think what a lot of entrepreneurs forget is that sooner or later, you need to exit at these multiples that your investors want for you to make a return as well. And as these very big checks come into the market, I think that what a lot of entrepreneurs have kind of missed is that it's going to get harder and harder and harder to actually get a return and to earn you the money that you deserve as an entrepreneur. So I think what's going to happen right now is market valuations will level off, not to the extreme level that we're seeing right now, but somewhere between. And then I think a very healthy approach will happen in the market where entrepreneurs raise money at healthy valuations and have a shot of exiting a company for substantial wealth. They may not, you know, have the kind of wealth that a, you know, an amazon.com early person may have, but they're going to have very strong wealth and they would have built something that's generational and and really exciting. So, you know, I I think we're in that kind of in-between stage right now where it's more, a little bit more fear and a little bit more anxiety from the general kind of investor base in the market, as well as the entrepreneur base. But it's just a a, a pendulum swinging back and forth. It's, It's still a great market to be in. I would agree that the pendulum, it has to swing. There's nobody who listens to this podcast who hasn't heard a story about a valuation on a venture-backed company that wasn't stunning. 
Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you couldn't make the numbers work in your head, but nonetheless it happened. Yeah. And that's because I, I can't help but believing as, as, as many brilliant people are, as there are in venture, emotion plays a part, right? Yeah. And Absolutely. it's not just, um, like I've had some exposure in the private equity world and in the private equity world, if the numbers aren't right they're you're done. It's yeah. there's nothing to talk about. I don't care how well your vision and the excitement. There's there is no emotion is is held at bay in a very deliberate and uh, profound way. Not so much in venture, right? No. No, absolutely. And that's the interesting thing about venture because certainly emotion and gut instinct has led to some incredible bets that seemed far-fetched that later on had incredible returns. That's kind of mm-hmm. the nature of the game. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and by the way, it's, that's the interesting part about venture, right? There's lots of studies done about which is better, right? Investing in the ones that can become a 10x, 100x play or trying to get a bunch of doubles and triples. And there's a lot of schools of thought on this. But no matter what, venture is much more, especially earlier stage venture, is much more about taking risks. But should risks be frothy and should they be emotional? I mean, to some degree, they have to be. But how much? And I think each firm's kind of stomach and propensity for that changes. Private equity, completely different beast, completely different. And it's funny. I think a lot of people just assume money is money. But that's something I've learned too, right? Like, as an entrepreneur, I thought I understood the nuances about where funds were, where funds look to get returns, stage of you know stage of investment, amount of capital, what kind of rights they're looking for. Uh, again, I'm only six weeks into it, but the training I've received and having the chance to work with co-investors has taught me so much more about that discipline and so much more about you know strategy in these markets. Um, and we'll see if it's right or wrong, who knows, but it's interesting to see that so much more thought goes into how investments are made, where they're made, what valuations they're made at. One thing, for instance, that, you know, we're all certainly very focused on at Omer's is investing at the right stage at the right price. Like we're trying to really focus on, um, avoiding some of the FOMO going on in the market right now and, and making sure that we're putting money to work at the right phase, at, again, right valuation in the right way. And some of our peers are much more interested in taking big bets, and that's cool. I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for that as well. Are you guys stage specific or will you uh, are, we will are. You inv- Yeah, talk about yeah. that. So Omer's, the current fund is $750 million. The check sizes are typically five to 25 million. And um, we generally focus on series A to C. But I will say, because checks have gotten so big, we're looking a little bit earlier now. It's, it's you know, most um, sectors, uh, Series C check could be much bigger. So um, I think you have to be aware of what's going on in your market. We're definitely looking a little bit earlier stage. And we are also in a couple of very early stage investments outside of insurance for incubation and kind of, uh, you know, early ideation. But generally speaking, we're looking at startups that, have at least proven some, you know, product market fit, and I'm generally showing that there is. Um, it's more of an execution bet than it is kind of a concept bet, and I think for InsureTech in particular, that's an important delineation, right? I've met lots of great entrepreneurs who raise a lot of money on ideas and insurance. And that's this market needs that, and this market really, I think a lot of people can do very well with that. 
where Omer's is most comfortable is, you know, say you're setting up an MGA, you probably ha- are in a couple of states now, you're maybe you're selling product in a couple of states. And this is much more about an execution and scale question than it is, is this concept even makes sense? And that's, mm-hmm. that's in the insurance space, at least a little bit more of, of where we're focusing. Um, and I'm a little bit broader based as well, tools, APIs, emerging risks, that kind of stuff as well. What are the kinds of problems you say series A to C? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. What are the kind of issues and problems it by series A is product market fit apparent? What are the things that you're weighing in that range of investment? Yeah. It's not apparent, but it's not a complete gamble. Listen, you know, I you know this too, right? You've you've done startups. It, you you think you have an idea and inevitably you're wrong and you're going to have to pivot your company a million times. And that's just part of the game. And personally, in my startups, I thought finally I nailed it. Finally, I'm on track only to find out a year later I was getting there, but I still had a ways to go. I think that's fine. And I think that from a series A investment perspective, you know, most venture capitalists recognize the fact that pivoting will happen. But we're not on a whiteboard stage where this idea may have regulatory overhead that we don't understand or may have encumbrances that we just don't get in the market, which is common in the seed stage investment, right? The number of times where I've met seed stage entrepreneurs or been one myself where I was totally wrong on the idea is, you know, a lot. So when you're looking at Series A, you're probably at a point where it feels like you're kind of narrowing in on the product market fit. And now it's a little bit more about execution scale. Possibility you're going to pivot some. It shouldn't be dramatic, though. Um, it should really just be about execution at this point. But there is that kind of variability there. In, say, a C, a C uh, stage, now you're just about like, we're just about executing. We just have to scale. Um, the ideas are being refined, but there's really no pivoting. Um, we have a clear path to where we want to be in three, four years. And now is the time to really attract big talent, You know, put together some big wins and actually get to that kind of vision, that shared vision that we all have as investors and entrepreneurs. So where do these crazy ideas come from that that you say you listen to pitches all day long do they seek you out do you have little secret agents out there going and finding these things is it just a big community of networking how does the information all bubble up yeah. to you guys to say this is somebody that we should hear yeah well i mean listen in the insure tech space it's not a huge space right like uh it's it's getting bigger and there's a lot of smart people in it but it's you know, only a few trade shows and conferences, only a couple of great podcasts, um, you know, only a couple of great resources to actually connect and network through. And my hope is that the experiences that I have and the brand that I have will attract people who have ideas to call me early. We work with other venture capitalists, though, and we recognize that we all play a different part in the overall ecosystem. So, you know, part of my job is writing articles, being on podcasts, telling people, hey, I'm no longer at Hippo, now I'm actually investing. If you have an idea, come to me. Part of my job is telling entrepreneurs, hey, you probably network with other entrepreneurs, please let them know. Part of my job is telling other venture capitalists, hey, we're interested in playing this kind of role. If you have companies that you're looking at and that either don't fit your needs or fit your needs, but you're looking for a co-investor or maybe you invested in one round and now you're looking for a new investor, We'd love to talk. 
Mm-hmm. And by the way, in my six weeks, I've seen all of the above. I've seen entrepreneurs refer people to me. I've seen investors who are looking for a partner call me. Um, it's across the board. So I think that, you know, where it comes from, I've had many cold uh, hits on LinkedIn. I've had cold emails, uh, all kinds of things. And, you know, I'm, in a good position right now where my schedule is still pretty open and uh, I have an incredible luxury of having a chance to meet with everyone. And, uh, you know, my kind of perspective is just be very open to any idea because I don't know exactly where I want to invest yet or what the right ideas are. But a lot of entrepreneurs are helping me kind of figure out the market as well. And I encourage anyone with, you know, really any startup idea in the insure tech space just to reach out to investors and and get those meetings and talk and, and try to like vet your idea out that way. How big or small is the insure tech space? I live inside of it. You live inside of it. So I don't know that our views and I don't play around with anything else or in anywhere else like like uh, I've mentioned my son before, and he's in the e-commerce space, way bigger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super yeah. big. And so yeah. t- talk about that for a minute. Is it a pretty small community? I mean, you go to InsureTech Connect. We've been there several times, the two of us, and and there's 6,000, 7,000, 5,000 people there. So that, I mean, that's a good size conference, but it's not 20. What's your thinking, your sense on that? I think the InsureTech market itself is small, the opportunity is huge, right? You're talking about insurance and how we approach insurance, I think will become much broader and will be much more comprehensive. And as we have these perspectives, that will actually become the insurtech industry will become insurance, right? This is no different than e-commerce, right? In e-commerce in 1994, when I first entered e-commerce, e-commerce was considered, you know, a, a thing as compared to traditional retail. And now they're 100% part and parcel, right? Like there mm-hmm. is no difference between retail and e-commerce. Mm-hmm. So I think very similarly, insurtech and insurance will become the same. When insurance and insurtech are considered the same, these will be a, a enormous plays that we're talking about right now. Right. And it's interesting too, the insurance startups, right, in say PNC, they're still very small compared to incumbents, but in cumulative, they're actually becoming fairly material. And when you see these numbers and the amount of market share that they're starting to acquire, it's becoming pretty substantial. So I think we're going to see two things. I think we're going to see an expansion of the overall kind of uh, market share that newer companies take, but I also see an expansion of the overall industry as new kinds of insurance come in the market, as new risks come into the market, and people just think about insurance differently. Speaking of think of insurance, so we think of claims, and when I say we, mm-hmm. I mean me yep. and Lee, who yep. was had to take a nap, so he couldn't be with us this afternoon. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. Little shout out there. Thanks, Lee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we're we're at a point where there's really nothing that is ubiquitous. Like, you know, I'm showing Dave my, my iPhone right now. I mean, that's ubiquitous, uh, smartphones and, and whatnot. And I mean, do you see that someday that, that there'll be tools and products and services that really are just giant insure tech plays that you see across the, uh, the, the whole ecosystem of insurance? Is that coming or is it always going to be like all these little bits and pieces? No, I don't think it'd be bits and pieces. I think it'll be, listen, insurance is like the backbone that allows the world to run. Totally. Totally. If you couldn't manage risk, 
it would be a very different world. Yeah. And today we deal with it very asynchronously, right? Like, oh, I need to go buy a house. And in that process, oh, I need to go and do this, or I'm going to buy a car and I need to do this, or I'm going to run a business. Oh, I need to get this kind of insurance. Embedded insurance, catchphrase of the of the week, certainly. But I think it's such a it's such a concept around what are people really buying, right? They're buying products and services they love. When insurance is kind of in the background, that risk protection that we need to do the things that we do in our lives. And it's, I think, much less friction and much easier to kind of obtain. Then it becomes pervasive. And we don't necessarily think of it as like, oh, what a boring industry or, oh, I got to do this and more just part of the equation of anything that I buy or anything that I do it becomes, I think, a, a much larger industry, right? In fact, if you think about it, like just from the business perspective, there's so much effort, like in my wife's business, just kind of figuring out what coverages she needs, right? Yet so many vendors have so much information on her that a lot of them could probably tell me what she needs, right? Shopify is a good example. So it, it just feels like this very, as I said before, asynchronous process will go away. Insurance will become the underlying um, layer of kind of everything we do, both in our personal lives and our business lives. And then this industry becomes even larger and it already is huge. So you're a connected home guy. You were yeah. deep into that space. How are you feeling about connected home these days? What are your thoughts there? I love it. I mean, I still love it, but you know, here's the thing, right? It's, it's a hard business. I, I started my first connected home startup in 2000. It was an energy play. We actually uh, closed a big investment from a publicly traded electric metering company. We built radios and connected technology to turn off lights and thermostats. We built Nest 15 years before Nest was in market. We had thousands of connected thermostats across the US and Canada in 2003 that we were running energy management events on. It was really hard and tricky then. Homes were like $5,000 to set up. Consumers didn't really know how to use the technology. It was kind of wonky. Here we are 20 years later. It works a lot better, but it's still hard to install in homes. It's still hard to get your arms around. Data is very, um, there's not a lot of interoperability. Data is islanded. I got into smart home again, thinking that insurance, uh, like a hippo smart home play, would be the big catalyst. And I do think it helped catalyze it to some degree. But realistically, in an industry like insurance, where, say, telematics has taken 15 to 20 years to kind of, you know, become a big thing, it's going to take time with home as well. So I'm, I'm still just as confident as ever that, you know, devices like water leak sensors and fire sensors, as well as smart home devices like smart hot water tanks and smart appliances can notify us when loss is about to happen, can help with underwriting, can help with all different kinds of, you know, kind of consumer benefit and B2B benefit. Mm -hmm. But it's still got a little bit of a ways to go, I think, in terms of, you know, that mass adoption. By the way, Hippo had a fantastic partnership with a couple of home builders where home builders were embedding technology as they build homes directly in. And that's a great catalyst, you know. Love yeah. that. I love that yeah. idea. I live in a 80 year old house. Yeah. Yeah. So the ship is entirely sailed. And because of the podcast, we're, we're fairly shameless and ask people for free stuff all the time. And, uh, and the, the IOT people tend to tend to send it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and so I have probably four different, uh, categories inside my house and made by four different companies um, that don't necessarily work together. 
But if it enables you to be a safer homeowner, though, that's a win, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the next step, though, is I think that, you know, Hippo's vision, not to, you know, get on the Hippo soapbox here because, but I, I believe so much in it, is the proactive preventative care, right? And when devices are giving you that notification, like, hey, there's going to be a problem with your hot water tank. Hey, there's going to be a problem with the so-and-so, whatever it might be. I think it enables the homeowner to do things and build a relationship with the homeowner that's very different than traditional, oh, your house burnt down, here's a check, right? So I think that that's kind of the future of insurance. And I think IoT can play a great role with that in the homeowner space and other spaces as well. Are you seeing fantastic plays now in other markets like um, cold chain, right? Like there's a lot of IoT now in cold chain to make sure that supply chain overall works the way that it should. Yeah, so I I think that there's going to be a... It's, we're just at the start. By the way, um, Omer's just announced a large investment in Foresight, who's a workers' comp play. And um, the team, who is a fantastic team, Dave and Pete, uh, the two co-CEOs, have a product called SafeSight. And SafeSight is a software product that helps work sites be safer. So over time, um, you know, purchasers of the mm-hmm. workers' comp can see savings. And today, that product is very software-based, helping kind of, you know, work sites become safer, um, teaching employees how to, you know, act a little bit more safe on the work site. But we are starting to see now IoT and other products emerge in that sector as well. So I think there's just going to be a real lot of opportunity for growth across all the different insurance sectors. Let's talk about Hippo for a minute. You were there sure. for just about a year or so and a little over a year, a little over a year. And, but you didn't make the decision to go and, and we love hippo. We've had all kinds of hip bites, hippoites, hippos, hippos on, on our podcast, super generous to us. seems to me that, you know, part of the value prop that hippo is trying to put across is, is that we're your partner in your house. Insurance is one of the things that we do. Right. Yep. And, and as cornerstone of what we do, however, do you need a new water heater? Let us help you, et cetera. Do you think they're there? Do you think they have the right formula? It's just a matter of more and more and more penetration? 100%. I think, in fact, and you know, full disclosure, I'm biased. I'm still a big stockholder. But um, I think that it's 100% the right strategy, not only for homeowners, but for all areas of insurance. I think this old school approach of just underwriting risk and hoping for the best is archaic. I think enabling proactive preventative care through new partnerships with the customer, through technology, enabling technology, be it IoT or AI or anything like that, is the future of insurance. And Hippo is doing missionary work, but that missionary work is being aided by others, including incumbents like Intelematics with Auto, Mm -hmm. who are starting to say, we'll give you these products to make you, say, a safer driver, and we'll give you insurance discounts because of it. And you know, I think something like replacing your hot water tank or fixing your roof before there's a leak or whatever the service might be is a hundred percent the way that the future of insurance will work with customers. Not because it's simply a differentiator, but because it's going to be the way that I think insurance has to work to remain affordable. There's this fallacy about insurance that I'll write a piece about sooner or later that, you know, people complain about their insurance. They go buy expensive coastal homes that are knocked away by hurricanes repeatedly. And in parallel, they complain about how much their insurance costs. And what people don't really understand is insurance is 
there for a reason and costs a certain amount for a reason. And if we all want insurance to remain, quote unquote, affordable, which arguably it's not when you look at certain states like you know Florida and others that are having big problems keeping it affordable, but still keeping solvency intact. I think the consumers are going to have a kind of a big awakening for how much insurance really costs. And the way to manage that, I think, is actually through this partnership and preventative care. I've had a lesson on my own. I became convinced that I was paying too much for my home insurance, Mm -hmm. which is bundled with my auto insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went and took it upon myself to find a right priced policy. And what I've discovered is I was very much in the market, my policy, um, policies, very much so. And it's because it's expensive. Yeah. It's expensive. And I live in California. And of course, in California, part of the calculation, part of the calculation of my rate has to do with other dangers and risks in this state especially wildfire in the past few years. And so I kind of help to subsidize that in my rate. But Absolutely. you know what? It doesn't matter who I do business with. Everybody's pretty competitive from a price yep. standpoint. And so that, that's one of the reasons I love Hippo because they offer me more than just here's the price for your, for your product, right? Uh, for, for, your, for your risk. We also do all these other things that can be of help to you. Yeah. And to be honest with you, it's hard to do that as an insurance company because it's there's a lot of regulation. the mindset 100%. Of, of the consumer. People shop on price in insurance. Yeah. And I get uh-huh. why we all do like, uh, you know, I'm no different. But when you think about the future of this industry and how the pricing is, I, I would argue today in, in PNC, it's not sustainable. Look at what's going on in auto right now. The rates are skyrocketing. Not because insurance companies are greedy, but because they can no longer afford to pay for the severity and frequency of accidents along with social inflation and other costs. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, if we don't take a more proactive care, uh, a more proactive approach rather, to helping insureds, and insureds also take a more proactive role in protecting their Mm -hmm. assets and not Mm -hmm. having, you know, the hazards risk. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Then this becomes unsustainable. So Mm -hmm. I I think we're actually at an incredible inflection point that insurtechs are going to really lead. And that's why I'm so bullish on this space, because it's this thinking and it's also the ability to move faster on technology and to move faster in business models. And to some degree, a little less regulatory overhead. Regulators have good intent, but they have to really worry about solvency with big insurers, where if you have a small book of business, you might be a little bit more like, okay, we'll let you experiment in these areas. Mm -hmm. And I think InsureTechs are going to be the big, I think everybody's a benefactor, but I think InsureTechs will be the really big benefactor of this kind of like tough spot that we're in with um, insurance kind of becoming, you know, unaffordable, risk becoming pretty severe, reinsurance markets getting pretty hard. I mean, there's just so many factors here. All that being said, I think that when you say uh, InsureTechs, I assume you're talking about like MGAs and and insurance insurers. Not the yep. tool, not the tool makers of the insure tech world, but the in- insurance companies. Well, I think the tool makers are at a great place too, right? Like we're seeing fantastic tools come by, and I think these tools are the difference of an incumbent kind of staying modern or not staying modern. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there are great claims platforms. There's great underwriting platforms. There's so many new technologies entering the market. It's really hard to sell to an incumbent. Um, 
you know, incumbents generally have a lot of tech debt with, you know, and this, by the way, happens in every industry. It's not like insurance is alone here, but um, it's when you have these huge systems running, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of policies, it's really hard to make change. And most of these buyers want to buy a de-risk solution. They want to wait till the solution is deployed in other and this makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So, but I think everybody's a benefactor, and I think that the market absolutely needs it, and that's why I'm more bullish than ever on InsureTech, both the tools as well as the kind of full stacks and MGAs. It seems that many of the InsureTech insurers have had some rough go lately. You have all the troubles of root. Hippo ran into uh, an interesting reception in the public markets and continues yep. to um, have a uh, you know a lower share price. What what are your thoughts on that? I think um again the early uh euphoria around changing the way a uh, you know multi-trillion dollar industry works it was hard to meet those expectations and I think now the pendulum swung the other way. And listen, to be very transparent about it, I think we all kind of drank the Kool-Aid that growth at any, any cost was, was the way to do it. Right. Like I, and by the way, that's my training as well. Right. Like as a tech guy, you get eyeballs first, you lose money on acquiring eyeballs, and then you figure out how to make money later on. And in most industries related to tech, that's an okay strategy. And I would argue it's actually not outrageous in insurance either. But when your metrics are so bad in insurance because you've disregarded the way that traditional insurance metrics work, you have a lot of opportunity you give a lot of opportunity for the market to poo-poo you, which is what I think is going on right now. Everybody's saying, you know, all these insure techs are crazy. They don't actually follow any of the fundamentals. Now I think a lot of them are starting to balance off, say like, hey, we have to be a little bit more cognizant. We don't have to be necessarily at the level of a major carrier, but we do have to be at least cognizant of the fact that there are traditional metrics to be benchmarked against. Mm-hmm. But that said, I don't think you want to give away at all, right? I don't think you want to leave that innovation realm. I don't think you want to be too much of an insurance company. You want to be an insured tech, right? So I think it's still important that, you know, you learn how to somehow put aside public markets and you kind of focus on that big long-term vision. And we encourage that in our portfolio and we encourage that for new entrepreneurs. I don't want to see your traditional insurance metrics driven by all the work of the past. I want to see where the future will be in this market. And I'm willing to take some risks around the fact that things are going to happen a little bit differently here. And I'll tell you, I think that the market will respond that I think, you know, regulators will encourage diversified revenue streams. I think customers will begin to want to work with their insurers on different kind of, you know, revenue streams as well, different programs, different products. And I think the market's going to evolve together. But I think right now we're on the extreme side of the sell off because people are just scared that the new world isn't going to work the right way. As somebody, as people who've been, you know, either active in this space like yourself or yeah. watching the space from the sideline yeah. uh, for, for the past several years, the amount of opportunity is still insanely abundant. It's staggering. It's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. The plays that we've seen come and succeed are exciting and that we've seen come and go and disappear. Yeah. We're still, I'd go as far as saying, we're still early. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what comes to mind, dot-com days, all the delivery companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars, all long gone, mm-hmm. right? And now look at delivery. And it's now like look at hot, delivery. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's probably not a great analogy, but the point is, is that it does show you that like these early innovators, some make it, some don't make it, but they're, I think it's something that bothers me more than anything about this space, but this happens in every market. The, the Now the naysayers are in mass and they're just you know nonstop, look how right we were, look how dumb InsureTech was. And it becomes very hard to see the progress that all these companies have made, incumbents as well. Incumbents because as well. Yeah. yeah. So when we look back 15 years from now, we will see a completely new landscape. Mm-hmm. It, the names may be the same, but the way insurance runs will be completely different. Mm-hmm. And I give credit to Asaf, to Daniel mm-hmm. Lemonade, to you know Alex at Root, to all Kyle at Clearcover, all these guys who are, and gals who are really early with brave ideas on how this would evolve. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, the entire market changes because of it. Are mm-hmm. they the winners? Who knows? 15 years from now, I, I can't bet on that. I'm not really sure. I, I'm supposed to as my job, but I'm, you know, I'm not really sure who's going to win, but um, I better get good at it. But, but yeah, but it, the whole entire industry will be different because of it. There's no doubt about it. Certainly the pioneers 100%. of our space. And I was just last week, I was at the uh, Verisk has a conference called Elevate, which is all part of ex- exact where, which yep. now that name's going away. It's just going to be Verisk. You know, they were around in the nineties. And so InsureTech is new, but it's been trying to emerge for a long time. It had to come into, it had, it was emerging in an industry that was not comfortable with it and still struggles with it. But I will say this as somebody who works with carriers every day as, as my main job, as where I earn my living, the openness is 100% changed. Everybody recognizes it, realizes it, knows it's happening, and wants to be on board. They just want to find the right fit, right? Yep. But the amount, yep. but the willingness to take a risk, much larger. And that's a virtual circle. Everybody's now going to get on that bandwagon of how do we raise the customer expectations? How do we do better with mm-hmm. underwriting? How do we do better with claims? Mm-hmm. To a point where the entire industry changes, and that bar will be raised. You know, through the work being done both on the insure tech side as well as the incumbent side with new tools. So, so we'll let you go <laughs> because you told us you have a hard stop and we need to um, respect that. I think we do. Yeah. Uh, do we need to? <laughs> you don't have to. Uh, yeah. It wouldn't be the first time that we didn't. Um, uh, but w- we love having you on and we, we thank you. And, and it's great that we got you at the beginning of, of your new journey. And, and I'm already sitting here thinking, God, we have to have, we have to have back Dave back on in a year so that he That's can great. say, boy, 2022 was a crazy year. And I'm so glad I was here. Cause I learned so much. This is what I learned. Would you come back yeah. and do that for us? Absolutely. I'd love it. I really appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate your support of, uh, of my career and uh, my wife's career. Thank you. And, uh, I've really enjoyed your program. So as I said to you, I, uh, listen to a couple episodes to kind of ramp myself up again. And, and I want to get that spot of, you know, your favorite guests. So I'm, I'm going to work on it. Well, <laughs> I'll say to you what I've never said to anyone else. You're <laughs> one of the smartest right. people I know <laughs> in the insurance industry. Right. You haven't said okay. it today. No. <laughs> I haven't said it in the last hour. Okay. Busted. Thanks, totally busted. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I 
did. Having Dave on is always a pleasure and seeing Dave is a pleasure. And we get to do that now on our recording platform. We get to see each other. And hearing about the deep insights that he has was a pleasure. And we thank him for being with us. And we thank Lee Boyd a lot. Thanks, Lee, for not being here today. Uh, but he'll be back next week. And we thank most especially all of you for being with us. Thanks to Al and to Alicia, the two Al's, as I like to call them, for everything you do. And that's it. So until next time, goodbye, everybody. <laughs>